Esther chapter 3, on page 778. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it and to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the, month, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all, the, all provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province, in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the kings, satraps, the governors of various provinces, and the nobles of various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself, and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces where the where they order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people in every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Thus ends our readings of God's inerrant word. May all who hear enjoy the patient mercy of our Lord. Have you ever asked yourself why God allows bad things to happen? Often in life, devastation will come about for no apparent reason. And you are left wondering how an all-powerful and good God can let evil happen. 
All too often, God seems distant and unconcerned about the trials in your life. It's as if he doesn't even know that you are struggling. Or worse, that he doesn't even care. I mean, after all, wouldn't an omnipotent God, who is also good, come to your rescue? If you recall our sermon from two weeks ago, you will remember that Mordecai had learned about an assassination plot against King Xerxes. And through his cousin, Queen Esther, Mordecai was able to warn the king, preventing Xerxes' demise. Justice was served, and the two culprits were sentenced to death by being hung on a tree. And just when you would expect Mordecai to be rewarded for his good deed, we read this, Esther 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him, giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all other nobles. The author of Esther is doing something critical here. He has highlighted an unexpected twist in the story. Instead of Mordecai being honored and promoted, we see Haman the Agagite receiving praise and glory. To fully understand what is going on here, we must first recount something that we had read previously in an earlier chapter in Esther. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Now most likely this Kish was the same Kish that had fathered King Saul, the first king of Israel. But we can't be certain of this. Yet by merely mentioning the name of Kish, the writer of Esther wants the reader to be reminded of King Saul. For this sets up the tension we see here in verse 1 of chapter 3. For Haman was an Agagite. Earlier, in our first scripture reading, we, we had read a passage about God commanding King Saul to attack the Amalekites and to utterly wipe them out. He was to destroy all the possessions and to put to death all of the men, women, and children, and even their animals. Let's pick up that story, 1 Samuel 15, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now these uh, Malachites had the dubious distinction of being the first nation to attack the Israelites after they had fled from Egypt. And they had been a thorn in the side of God's people for many generations since. 
God had finally given them over to the Jews, yet King Saul did not fully follow God's instructions. He had left King Agag alive, along with the best of their animals. And because of this act of disobedience, Yahweh took the throne away from King Saul and handed it over to King David. Yet in Agag, we see represented the enemy of God's people, the Amalekites. And so throughout generations, whenever Israel faced a despised enemy, they would give them the title of either being an Agagite or an Amalekite. The first century Jews called the Roman oppressors by such titles. And even today, there's some in Israel that call the Palestinians by this same name. So we see here in both Mordecai and Haman, we have this reminder of King Saul's failure in his dealings with King Agag. Whether or not Haman was an actual descendant of Agag or not, it doesn't really matter. What the author is making abundantly clear to his Jewish audience is that Haman is the enemy of the Jews, which causes a strong tension within Mordecai. Let's look at verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, even though the author doesn't explicitly say why Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, it is implicit in what we have already discussed. One, there was likely some type of jealousy in the fact that Mordecai was overlooked by the king while Haman was not. And two, being that Haman was an Agagite, an enemy of God's people, there was this ingrained animosity that Mordecai had towards him. So stubbornly, Mordecai refused to bend the knee to Haman. Of course, this was noticed by the others, and Mordecai was questioned about it. Verse 3, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, and he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When asked for a reason for his disobedience, Mordecai reveals to these officials that he was a Jew. Remember, he had been hiding this fact previously. And as a Jew, he would not bow down to the enemy of his people. So finally, Haman was told about Mordecai's behavior. Here's his response. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. True to his Agagite title, Haman chose his hatred for the Jews. It was not enough to punish just Mordecai. Rather, the the disobedience of this one Hebrew man got placed upon the whole race. 
For whatever reason, Haman loathed the Jewish people. And he saw Mordecai's disobedience as an opportunity to wipe out God's people once and for all. So he schemes and he plots, thinking of a way to commit genocide. Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Again, you have to remember that the people at this time, they would always look to the help of their gods when they made any important decisions. And this casting of the purr, it's similar to rolling the dice. It was, it was cast to determine when Haman would find favor from his gods as he sought to destroy the Jews. So by casting, casting lots, Haman took the decision out of his own hands and placed it into the hands of his gods. Or so he thought. For the purr fell on the, on the twelfth month allowing the maximum time of reprieve before judgment would come to the Jews. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You see, Haman believed that his gods were behind this verdict. Yet it was a true and living God that directed the purr. Of course, Haman didn't have the authority to order such a destruction. He still needed to come before the king. We see this in verse 8. Then Haman said to Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. If you notice, Haman had to be careful with his words. Everything he says is truthy, but it isn't the whole truth. He doesn't even mention which people he is speaking of, or how their customs differ. He withholds any description of what laws they have broken. Instead, he describes these people as intolerable. And he paints them in the worst light possible, hoping the king will bite. He then sweetens the deal by saying that that the king would reap 10,000 talents of silver as spoils of war if these rabble-rousers were put down. Let's see how the king responded. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Xerxes isn't interested in the money. Most likely he knows Haman too well and assumes that he is exaggerating. It's doubtful that any race but the Persians had that much wealth within his empire. Yet, uncharacteristically, the king doesn't 
look further into this matter. This isn't how Xerxes normally went about his business. He had always been a careful ruler, following the laws of the land and investigating matters thoroughly. Yet here he nonchalantly gives Haman his signet ring. And along with it, the power to wipe out a whole race. Verse 12. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out the script of each province in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to, to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. It was the 13th day of the first month. It was the eve of Passover. The decree goes out to all the land declaring that in 11 months the Jews were to be destroyed to be killed, to be annihilated, young and old, women and little children. The command that God had once given to King Saul and to Israel concerning the Amalekites and now fell upon their own heads. And the joy of the Passover holiday, a, a celebration of God's rescue, had become a festival of demise, full of gloom and despair. And the people had to be asking, why would the king allow such evil to take place? Look at our last verse, verse 15. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. At the end of our chapter, we are given this contrast between the citizens of Susa and Haman and the king. On the one hand, we see confusion and despair. The people were bewildered by such an order. I mean, what could the Jews have done so wrong that they deserve such treatment? Of course, any Jew living within Persia, they would have been in anguish over this edict. And then on the other hand, we're, we're left wondering about a king who, who nonchalantly just sips his wine as an edict of genocide is sent throughout his kingdom. Now, now, Haman, we can understand, for he would have been celebrating his victory over his enemies. But Xerxes, he seems aloof to all that is going on. He is calm and untroubled, as if he doesn't grasp the immensity of this moment. 
question lingers. Where is God in all of this? Couldn't he have prevented such an act of evil? I mean, he is both all-powerful and good. So wouldn't he have wanted to stop such a decree of death going forth? Perhaps you have asked such questions before. Maybe an act of cruelty or, or hatred has brought pain and suffering into your life. And as a result, you're left standing there wondering, why? Why did God allow this to happen? Where is he in all of this? Doesn't he care? Yet no answer comes. Instead, God seems aloof and untroubled, as if he is just sitting back and sipping his wine, oblivious to the hurt and the anguish that is all around him. Of course, what the people of Susa didn't know was that this edict originated because of one man's disobedience. Mordecai would not follow the king's command because of the hatred in his own heart. His defiance was that next domino that needed to fall. And Haman, the Agagite, was ready to pounce. Like Satan, Haman was the accuser of the saints. He had brought his indictments to the king, and his accusations were not without merit. For Mordecai truly did disregard the, the king's command. So Haman was given the signet ring of the king and allowed to carry out his plans. In one regard, He was left unchecked when it came to the Jews. Yet in another, Haman's evil was delayed. For when he cast the purr, it fell on the twelfth month, allowing time for rescue to show itself. Like the prophets of old who who warned Judah of the, the coming destruction that was Babylon, So now this edict of the king acted as a prophetic warning to the Jews. And just as God patiently sat back, waiting to see if Judah would turn back to him before sending the Babylonian armies, so too we see King Xerxes just sipping his wine, seemingly unconcerned about the destruction that was about to take place. Of course, Xerxes' patience is merely ignorance, or maybe callousness on his part. But it does paint for us a picture of how God frequently interacts with his people. Often God can seem distant and cold, particularly in times of trouble. But have you considered the possibility that it might be you who is the distant one? Calamity isn't just a punishment for sin. But it's often God's way of waking the dead. As trouble brews, God is demonstrating the frailty of man and their need for his rescue. 
this seemingly absent God, he knows every detail about your life. He brings both blessings and curses your way in order to get your attention. The question is, are you listening? The Jews throughout the Persian Empire, may, they may not have been guilty of breaking any of the king's commands. Nonetheless, they received the brunt of Haman's attacks. Because of one man's disobedience, the whole nation had been condemned. Satan is the accuser of the saints. And he is bent on the destruction of God's people. For reasons unknown to us, God has permitted him to continue his assaults. And God's people are left bewildered. Of course, Satan assaulted our Lord as well. God permitted his only begotten son to be betrayed and arrested. He allowed our Lord to be mocked and ridiculed. He then gave his okay for for Christ to be nailed to a tree. It was on Golgotha that Jesus hung in shame. There he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God, the Father, was silent. God allowed all of this in order to rescue his people. In order to rescue you. God may seem far off. And he may appear silent. Yet he is in the midst of all that is happening in your life. He is trying to wake the dead. The edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Let us pray. Father, we confess that all too often we feel alone in a world that is out to get us. And in our hurt, we wonder where you are. Yet you are right there with us. You know our suffering. And you carry our burdens. You wait patiently for us, desiring that we will see our need for you. Help us to repent. Help us to look to your Son who who died on the cross for our sins. Change our hearts by the renewing work of your Holy Spirit. May we seek you and not be distant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.